Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello and welcome, history friends, delegates, patrons, everybody else in between, to the second episode of the Delegation Game. Last time we brought you the very first installment of this absolutely wonderful experience, and it went down well enough to persuade another handful of people to sign up since. It was a week of scheming and plotting as the different Facebook chats saw an awful lot of magic happen, with cooperation the order of the day and everyone really making this game special. Like many of you, I've had to mute several of these groups and check up on them after intervals. So incredibly active is this community of nearly 40 people which has grown up around this game. I cannot express enough how heartwarming it is to see this thing develop and expand and it has surpassed my expectations so many times over and over again. While it was a week of activity, it was also a week of learning curves for many of us as we got to see precisely how the different mechanisms work 
and what we're all capable of. For me, I encountered the first in probably a long line of whoopsies when playing this game because I was forced to announce the postponement of the votes which I had put forward at the end of last week's episode, due to the very reasonable fact that you all could not be expected to vote on things, like the Irish War of Independence or the League of Nations, when I had yet to bring you the background details of those stories in the actual Versailles project. The whole idea was that the Versailles Anniversary Project would inform the delegation game and then make your votes easier to understand, and this had actually been mapped out within my notes, but due to my enthusiasm last week I forgot all about this and proposed votes a whole week earlier than I was meant to, so sorry for that mix-up, but at least this exercise did reveal what you'll be asked to vote on following today's episode, and it also gave you some time to think over how you feel about the different options. To reiterate, Please return your results by Wednesday 5pm GMT to ensure that they have an effect and to vote simply click on the very handy link which you will be sent later on this evening. Actually I sent it before recording just so you know. So our pool of delegates is expanding and I had to backpedal a little bit but other things took place too. A huge shout out to Joseph Doherty, a Canadian delegate, who successfully proposed a motion for devolved government in the north and south of Ireland. Ah, nice job, Joe. As I understand it, this means that Ireland will essentially have what amounted to limited home rule, a situation which mirrored that after 1922, only this time in our alternative history, the terrible traumas of the War of Independence and Civil War don't have to be endured first. The implications of this proposal will be dealt with in this episode, as will the implications of another resolution, successfully passed by Bonifacio Fidel, called the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement, a revolutionary idea which brings free trade and economic cooperation, with some limited political cooperation as well, to the Baltic, East Central Europe, the Balkans and Adriatic, and which contains several interesting levers and mechanisms that we'll get into shortly. Of course, this wouldn't be the delegation game if we didn't introduce our new delegates. Last week our episode revolved around this mission, and while a rather ingenious prank was afoot, we got to meet each one of the different delegates in their turn, spending more time on some delegates than others. By introducing the delegates to you now, with an ever so brief message about who they are, where they come from and what they want, the idea is you hopefully won't be confused when they begin appearing in this episode. We have six new delegates in all to introduce. First. Let's look at the two new American delegates. Oliver Flanagan is a rich oil baron and Harvard graduate who imagines that he can have a great impact on all proceedings. He is a firm ally of Roosevelt and we referenced him briefly travelling to Paris by boat in last week's episode. William Randolph Hearst is a billionaire newspaper magnate, eager to put his money where his mouth is and have some kind of role in shaping the peace conference. He is vain, not particularly good at politics and not particularly well liked either, so let's see how he gets on. Next, we have a man who needs little introduction, the former Russian Premier Alexander Kerensky, who finds himself in Paris in 1919, as he did in real life, with few genuine hopes but an awful lot of tricks up his sleeve nonetheless. Kerensky wants to rid Russia of the Reds and hold on to as much of old Russia as possible, and he's not above forming unusual partnerships to achieve this end. Fourth, we have a Belgian by the name of Generous Dinglebrush. Please let me know if I'm pronouncing that right. And if the name doesn't give it away, then what you've got here is a former soldier turned lackluster politician full of 100% organic hot air. Fancies himself a Bismarck, but Dinglebrush is unable to lace up the shoes of a lesser clerk, 
and he got this far because of his connections. But now that he was in Paris facing this test of his abilities, it's entirely possible that Dinglebrush's shortcomings would be on full show, and I kind of get the feeling by the way he was described in the character form that that's exactly what the player had in mind. So, Dinglebrush will be cleaving to the far more accomplished other Belgium, Paul de Mons, whom we met last week. Our final two delegates aren't necessarily new, but they both come from listeners who signed up to play the game and didn't send me any details. So rather than leave their names on the board, I decided to sub in avatars for them myself. But if either Mr. McCartney or Mr. McCarthy, yes, that's both of their names just to make it more interesting, if either of you guys don't like what I've chosen for you, then you're more than welcome to get in touch with me and suggest alternative avatars. And these two guys that I have here will just meet a sticky end. For you, Mr. McCartney, I have provided you with the Serbian Premier Nikola Pešić as your delegate. Pešić was a renowned Balkan politician, fearsome and always quietly scheming, with the appearance of a grandfatherly statesman that threw everyone off when he started firing on all cylinders. Pešić's greatest loves were family and Serbia, so we can expect him to intervene enthusiastically and ruthlessly in the event that either come under threat. To you, Mr. McCarthy, I present the real-life Irish delegate, Mr. Sean T. O'Kelly, an avowed Irish Republican determined to fight for Ireland's complete separation from Britain. Thanks to what we know about both of these men, the aforementioned proposals on Ireland and intermarium free trade will have some interesting foils to deal with. In case you're wondering how these two delegates would interact with you guys, since their players seem to have gone AWOL, well, first of all, I'd say to those players, come and play, because we're having a great time. Otherwise, I'd say, within reason at least, I'll be taking on some of the responsibilities of these different individuals. So for either Mr. Sean T. O'Kelly or Nikola Pesic, I'll be speaking on their behalf. And I'll do this as best as I can. And I'll also try not to get too overwhelmed. Because being a chairman is a full-time job and it's very busy indeed. Did I mention I freaking love this game and I'm having a great time? Anyway, as far as I'm aware, that about wraps up our introductory work for this episode. So, without any further ado, I want to take you to the second week of our alternative Paris Peace Conference, where the plenary conference on the League of Nations hung over those present in Hotel Twombly like some kind of shadow. A shadow which not all delegates were happy with. Oh, and by the way, yes, that music that introduced this episode and will be introducing the rest of the delegation game comes to you courtesy of Paderewski, because... He offered, and because we could all do with some class around here, I think we can all agree. Now then, take it away, dear delegates. The implications were unmistakable, and he could not believe his ears. David Lloyd George felt his blood boiling as he made his way towards the Hotel Twomley. The walk, George Clemenceau had suggested, would probably do him good, but in the same breath Clemenceau had made it clear that there was no way either the French, Italian or American leaders would change their minds. Not only three of the big four, but also a significant number of the Dominions and associated delegates had all made up their minds, and their minds had been made to grant devolved government to the two parties in Ireland. Lloyd George was adamant that this idea would instigate conflict on the island. Those opposite Lloyd George were adamant that Ireland was moving closer to conflict with each passing day anyway, and that it was impossible to talk of a new world order or self-determination without looking oneself in the mirror first. Britain, it was said, would have to engage in this exercise 
by looking at the Irish flank in its eye. When he had first received news of the passage of the proposal on the evening of the 22nd of January, Lloyd George's mind had been taken up with Russian affairs and talk of German disarmament, and he had not been prepared for its presentation or its passage. Those among the Council of Ten were informed that the proposal for devolved Irish government had the majority support of all those present, aside from the British, of course. It had been proposed by a Canadian judge turned delegate by the name of Joseph Doherty, and the proposal had quickly gained the assent of virtually all the relevant parties. Hotel Twomley, Lloyd George was told, had become a hotbed of new and fresh approaches to the world's problems. It seemed to Lloyd George as though it was instead the hotbed of treasonous activity. It was unacceptable that Ireland should receive representation in this manner. Ireland was still a British sphere and was of no business to the other powers or delegates who did not understand the Anglo-Irish situation. Lloyd George felt his back up against the wall and Balfour had assured him that the Irish Americans would never accept it and that they would rally against it in the United States. This was because the proposal presented the idea of a less than complete independence from Britain, which Irish Americans desired, and it was therefore unacceptable to them. To much of Sinn Féin as well, the leaders of that blasted rising and now the forerunners of this seditious Irish parliament in Dublin, or the doll as they liked to call it, could also be expected to object to it, because they wanted full independence from Britain, no matter what the consequences were. Although there were rumours of a moderate party existing within Sinn Féin, but Lloyd George could not be sure of this yet. What he was sure of was that these Sinn Féiners were children. They were Irish children playing with government, and now some sympathetic, naive do-gooders had taken up their cause. It was inconceivable that the Republicans should be recognised as some form of legitimate government, just as it was incredible that the Unionists in the North had actually agreed to the arrangement. There was nonetheless a voice at the back of his head which Lloyd George could not ignore and this voice told the Prime Minister that this proposal was something of a saving grace. With half of their MPs in prison, Irish rebels were reduced to a skeleton political crew and in a fit of fancy they declared the Irish Republic open for business only a few days before on the 21st. Evidently they had friends enough in high places but there would be time in the future to get back at these well-connected friends of Ireland. He kept running over the details in his head as the noise and bustle of Paris passed him by. Some Parisians turned their heads or lifted their hats towards him as he walked. Lloyd George could feel his powers of charm fading as the anger increased, but to show anger was to show a lack of restraint, to show weakness. He would confound this Canadian, Judge Joe Doherty, he would humble him and shame him for his lack of faith in Britain's Irish mission, and he would do it in such a way that Doherty would thank him for it afterwards. That was what Lloyd George was good at, and that was what he fully intended to do. Still, he just could not ignore that voice, which told him that the proposal was well-timed and something like a get-out-of-jail-free card. If he could get past the feeling of being overlooked, being worked around, or being outmaneuvered, then the actual contents of the agreement were not all that fundamentally insulting. It was the limits of what he had intended to grant the Irish if they had risen up in rebellion. Let the Irish have their free state, but they would remain a dominion and part of the Commonwealth. That was all they could be expected to get. Doherty's proposal had made this clear, but it had also thrown a bone to the Unionists, while simultaneously taking any potential blame for the agreement off of Britain's shoulders. If Unionists got angry at Lloyd George for agreeing to this proposal, 
then Lloyd George would just be able to say that it wasn't all his fault. In fact, this was a great opportunity. Lloyd George could present his position to the Unionists, point to the unanimously supported proposal that Britain was alone in opposing it, and that it at least granted the Unionists some security after the Rising. It made everything effectively quieter in Ireland. It had cost Britain nothing, and Lloyd George could still present his acceptance of it as a great compromise on his part. Some rich prize could surely be attained in return for this compromise. Perhaps oil in the Middle East, or greater control over further mandates. The potential benefits were starting to outweigh the negatives. Ireland had been a trouble spot for so long. Maybe an external initiative like this was exactly what the doctor ordered. Lloyd George did not like the spectacle of so many other countries agreeing on what to tell Britain to do about its Irish problem, but the Prime Minister could not deny that Ireland was a problem, and that this proposal came closer than any idea he had seen to solving it. Pleading helplessness in the situation did not have to seem weak on Britain's part, if her Prime Minister subsequently drove a hard bargain in return for accepting in public what he had already accepted in his heart. His political senses told him that the proposal had the assent of so many important and influential Americans, not to mention the support given by Pauli Mons, the Belgian foreign minister, who had expressed his passionate desire to see Ireland compensated after all the blood her countrymen had spilt in freeing his land from the German tyranny. When he at first had wanted to strangle Doherty, Lloyd George, on his way to Hotel Twomley, felt his mood lifting as his political brain worked in overdrive, spitting out potential scenarios and outcomes. He could see the large golden-plated doors of the Hotel Twomley across the street. It looked like quite the place. Lloyd George wondered why more Brits had not been sent here. Only Fitzwilliam and Tankred had been sent here, and considering their reputation as jokers, he knew the reason why, but it was risky for security's sake. He had heard it said that the drink was very strong, but the food was bad. Lloyd George thought that from where he was standing across the street, he could see a man leaning heavily against the front wall of the hotel. Could this man be drunk? Was this a consequence of the hotel's reportedly strong alcohol? It was 11am. As he approached and heard the man muttering, he thought he heard Polish. Walking gingerly past this drunken man, who seemed very well dressed for an urchin, It dawned on Lloyd George that it was unusual for homeless drunk Poles to frequent Paris, and that perhaps this was a member of that separate Polish delegation he had heard so much about. About ten feet from the doors, a figure burst through these same front doors and made a beeline for the drunk Pole. Lloyd George couldn't help but stand and stare, as three more figures followed that other man. He recognised one of them. That was Paderewski, no doubt, and another was Pilsudski, the famed commander. He thought Pilsudski was back in Warsaw and that he couldn't stand Paderewski, but here seemed proof that Poles were indeed working together like never before. A cloud of five Poles, only one of them seemed fully sober, had gathered near the entrance of this hotel and argued loudly in Polish. Lloyd George did not realise that he had been staring, but he must have been obvious because one among the group turned to glare at him before double-taking, putting his hand over his mouth and rushing up to greet him. Lloyd George took a few steps back in apprehension as a one-eyed man stuck out a rough-looking hand to shake and in broken English announced, Prime Minister, Poland welcomes your thanks. I am naming Bronski. Lloyd George took the hand as smoothly as he could, unable to quite close his mouth at the scene, 
before Paderewski rushed over and expressed himself in the most luxurious of accents. Mr. Lloyd George, please forgive our appearance. It seems as though one of my colleagues is quite ill. I hope you will not think ill of us at this very tense moment in Poland's great and grave history. At last, someone with some class. My dear Paderewski, Lloyd George began. A pleasure, my good man. Paderewski then talked with some speed, gesturing in turn to Pilsudski and another figure he did not recognize named Pavel Lebova. Paderewski mentioned something about Lvova sitting on some relief committee, but Lloyd George did not get all the information because he realised that his politician's senses were pulling him gradually away from this group of Poles and into the lobby of the Hotel Twomley. With something of a relief, Lloyd George waved goodbye to the Poles and headed inside. The lobby of the hotel was full of people, but there was still plenty of space. Lloyd George had entered what amounted to a large rectangular room. On the other end, he could make out a bar which was full from one side to the other with guests or delegates, he could not tell which. How on earth was he to find one Canadian in this entire place? How could he go about avoiding the Americans? Would he be able to catch a glimpse of that legendary Arabian warrior who supposedly resided here? As these questions filled Lloyd George's head, the Prime Minister walked into the centre of the room where several splendid couches sat and plonked himself down. Failing to look at who had been sitting on the other half of the couch, he was immediately aware that a man sitting on the other half of this couch was looking him up and down. Wishing to avoid contact, perhaps this was another admirer of his, Lloyd George pretended not to notice. At this rate, he would have to find some sort of disguise if he wanted to be left in peace. He checked his watch. He only had a few hours before the plenary conference opened for the second time, and the League of Nations was presented to everyone that was anyone in the city. Still, he could feel the man burning a hole in the side of his face, so with some hesitation he turned towards him, expecting to have to make some sort of excuse before going on his way. Vittorio Orlando, the Italian Premier, was staring back at him with barely veiled indignation. Prime Minister, did you intend to ignore me all afternoon? Orlando asked. The question was in jest, or was it? Lloyd George prepared a politician's answer, but Orlando fired back with some satisfaction. No matter, I had just finalised the details of a new arrangement for Eastern and Balkan trade. What was this fussy little man on about? Eastern and Balkan trade? Lloyd George asked. Why, yes indeed, replied Orlando, satisfied again that he knew something that the Prime Minister didn't. And the Baltic too, but the Adriatic will be especially interesting. All wrapped up, based in Prague, the idea of my subordinate, Bonifacio Fidel. He is quite brilliant, really. I was most impressed. Lloyd George had a million questions, but he didn't want to give Orlando the satisfaction. The Italian Premier had been spending a great deal of time in the Hotel Twomley, and Lloyd George was concerned that the creation of some rival power block to the Big Three was afoot. Perhaps it was, Lloyd George admitted to himself reluctantly, because he kept thinking of the gathering as the Big Three rather than the Big Four. Would Orlando have schemed so openly if he had been treated better? Rumour had it that he had the ear of Teddy Roosevelt, and now this trade agreement based in Prague? What did it all mean? Lloyd George merely wished Orlando luck before moving on, awkwardly introducing himself to Fidel, as he left this island of couches for the front reception desk. If Joseph Doherty would not come to him that he would come to the Canadian himself. 
Behind the front desk was a bored Parisian with a cigarette in one hand and a pencil in the other. He was filling out a crossword. One moment, monsieur, the Parisian said, without looking up from his puzzle. Lloyd George would have liked to have demanded service, but he waited for two minutes as his blood pressure rose once more. Apparently, it was not merely the food in this blasted hotel that was of a poor standard. After five minutes, perhaps having given up on the crossword, the Parisian called Lloyd George to the front desk. Perhaps this little secretary had had an off day because he still had not recognised Lloyd George for who he actually was, but as he looked the Prime Minister up and down, and as he then glanced back to his newspaper in something of a panic, Lloyd George took some satisfaction by watching this man shrink before his eyes. Mon Dieu, the Parisian exclaimed. Did I just ask the Prime Minister of Britain to wait? You did, Lloyd George replied, staring coldly back at him. The secretary was practically in a meltdown, as he attempted to ask the same question three times before giving up and asking in French. Joseph Doherty, was all Lloyd George said. The Parisian looked confused and then horrified, opening a guest book and somehow flicking his pencil across the other side of the desk in the process. He is not here, monsieur, the man stammered. Or he is, but not in his room. He is at a meeting at the moment. Well, where is it? Lloyd George nearly barked. Basement function room number three, the Parisian croaked. Was it possible that he could feel the sweat rising out of this secretary? Lloyd George wasn't sure, but he was sure that he hadn't lost a step. If he could work the same magic on a nobody like Doherty, then he would surely be able to remake this proposal however he wished, or bin it all together if it suited him. Walking briskly onwards, Lloyd George avoided the lift and took a single flight of stairs down, passing by the first two function rooms before barging into function room number three as instructed. The sight which greeted him on the other side of the door was nothing at all like what the Prime Minister had expected to see. Seated in the room were 16 individuals of various nationalities. At the head of the table sat three figures, one of which was the now famous creator of this scheme, Joseph Doherty. To his right sat an Irishman by the name of Sean T. O'Kelly, and to his left, incredibly enough, sat George Clemenceau. Everyone present had evidently not been expecting Lloyd George, especially Clemenceau, who only told Lloyd George that morning that he should walk to this place rather than get a driver. Clemenceau obviously did not think Lloyd George would take it upon himself to travel all the way to the Hotel Twomley to make his case. Lloyd George stared daggers at the French Premier, who matched these daggers with an ashen expression of his own. The whole room had gone silent. The tension could be cut with a knife. The Irishman, O'Kelly, spoke up. Thanks for stopping by, Prime Minister. Mr. O'Kelly, Lloyd George began, you will kindly tell me what it is you hope to gain by parading the domestic questions of the British Isles before the world. My homeland prepares for war, O'Kelly replied, his eyes fixed on Lloyd George. And where you refused to help, I looked for people that would. Everyone here appreciates the need to solve the Irish question, especially with the League of Nations due to be presented to the conference. Why should questions of Polish, Czech or Serbian independence be discussed when we, a nation of Irishmen and women, still have yet to acquire representation? The Irishman lies, Lloyd George hissed. Irish MPs are fully entitled to sit at Westminster. It is not the fault of the establishment that rebels refuse to abide by the law. 
You threw them in prison, O'Kelly fired back. You threw them in prison and you ignore the mandate which confirmed the desire for Irish independence. If you wish to speak for small nations, then what about us? This proposal does not even answer the question in your favour, so why would you support it? Lloyd George asked, in an effort to deflect. For the same reason as everyone else here, O'Kelly said. To prevent bloodshed in Ireland by creating a compromise which is inclusive of and supported by all. You cannot ignore Ireland, Prime Minister. My countrymen have been laid low for too long and are close to breaking point. With this agreement, I at least have something to show for the diplomatic mission. Lloyd George was taken aback. He was disarmed not only by O'Kelly's impassioned arguments, but also by his reasonableness and respect for rank. As Lloyd George paused, one man seated at the table addressed him. If I may, Prime Minister, I am Arthur McCalville and I represent Newfoundland. This proposal is bold indeed, sir, but it is just bold enough and imaginative enough to work. For the sake of Ireland, we simply must try. Another voice piped up. Belgian Foreign Minister Paul Limons. Respectfully, Prime Minister, Belgium, as you know, has no interest in interfering in domestic British matters. We do not wish to give you the impression that the British losses in defence of our nation mean nothing to us, or that we are not loyal to the British interest. But... We cannot at the same time ignore the horrendous sacrifices made by Irishmen in the same cause. Too much blood was spilled by Irishmen who answered the call for Belgium to ignore Ireland's mission now. And Ireland's mission is one of peace. Australians support Ireland, said David McKay from the corner of the table. McKay was a former Australian commander turned politician. I believe it is time that the world moved on from the previous century, McKay added and gave our Irish brethren what they were entitled to. We in Australia lost much in this war, and have been promised a great deal in return. Ireland followed a similar path, so why should the same treatment not be afforded to them? Lloyd George felt himself wincing at the interjection of two Dominion delegates and the Belgians Britain had moved to save. The Prime Minister inhaled quietly and paused again before turning to the French Premier. And what of you, dear George? The Prime Minister began. You previously disavowed all efforts by the Irish to move you, rightly noting that it was a British domestic affair above all. What changed your mind? Prime Minister, George Clemenceau replied. I hope you forgive the shock in seeing me here. This is not a table of your enemies. I merely arrived because I did not think you would, and I wished to ensure that your nation was not disadvantaged by the proposal or by your absence. And, Lloyd George asked, What has your journey revealed? Well, Clemenceau replied, I have learned that this proposal is moderate, attainable and the best solution to Britain's problem. France has its own problems with disillusioned peoples, as you know, Clemenceau said, before stealing a stern glance at Charles Scheer, the Alsatian delegate. However, continued the Frenchman, it would be reckless not to give peace every chance, particularly in a nation which has bled so terribly for Belgium and for British interests. Clemenceau then produced a letter which Sean T. O'Kelly had written to him only a few days before. This letter was sent to me not long ago by the gentleman beside me, Clemenceau said in a gentle tone. It symbolises not only a nation's brave quest for independence, but also this man's willingness to meet his counterparts halfway. This is the true mark of a great statesman. After a gesture from Lloyd George, which indicated that the Prime Minister would listen, Clemenceau then cleared his throat and proceeded to read this letter which O'Kelly had sent him. He read it word for word. 
Sir, my name is Mr. Sean T. O'Kelly. As the accredited envoy of the Government of the Irish Republic, I have the honour to bring to your notice the claim of my government in the name of the Irish nation for the international recognition of the independence of Ireland and for the admission of Ireland as a constituent member of the League of Nations. The Irish people seized the opportunity of the general election, December 1918, to declare unmistakably its national will. Only in 26 out of 105 constituencies of the country was England able to find enough loyalists to return members favourable to the union between Ireland and Great Britain. For the remaining 79 seats, the electors chose as members men who believed in self-determination. Of these, 73 who now represent an immense majority of the people went forward as Republican candidates, and each of these Republican members has pledged to assert by every means in his power the right of Ireland to the complete independence which she demands under a national Republican government, free from all English interference. On the 21st of January 1919, those of the Republican members, whom England has not yet cast into her prisons, met in the Irish capital in a national assembly to which, as the only Irish Parliament du jour, they had summoned all Irish members of Parliament. On the same day, the National Assembly unanimously voted the Declaration of Independence, appended hereto, and unanimously issued the message to the free nations likewise appended. The National Assembly has also caused detailed statements of the case of Ireland to be drawn up. That statement will demonstrate that the right of Ireland to be considered a nation admits of no denial and that, moreover, that that right is inferior in no respect to that of the new states constituted in Europe and recognised since the war. Three members, Eamon de Valera, Mr Arthur Griffith and Count Plunkett, have been delegated by the National Assembly to present the statement to the Peace Conference and to the League of Nations Commission in the name of the Irish people. Accordingly, I have the honour, sir, to beg you to be good enough to fix a date to receive the delegates above named, who are anxious for the earliest possible opportunity to establish formally and definitively before the Peace Conference and the League of Nations Commission, now assembled in Paris, Ireland's indisputable rights to international recognition for her independence and the propriety of her claim to enter the League of Nations as one of its constituent members. Following Clemenceau's reading of this letter, which the Irish delegate present had sent him a few days before, the Prime Minister paused for a moment once again, gaining a full mental picture of the range of delegates seated at the table. This was an international affair indeed, and he had only sat with Orlando a few minutes before, and the Italian had said nothing about the wide support for the deal. Where are those Irish delegates mentioned by the gentleman in question? Lloyd George asked. Well, I told them not to come, O'Kelly replied. I told them that a moderating hand was needed in light of this proposal, and that my peers, at the conference, will be able to trust my judgement. Your judgement, Lloyd George scoffed, before he had a chance to stop himself. You're a rebel, a rebel soldier, a, a criminal. I am a freedom fighter, O'Kelly replied, and I stand here fighting with all my power for peace, where before I fought with all my power for war. Many people have died in my country for the sacred mission of independence, Prime Minister, and many more will die again if needs be, but we must consider whether this is truly the best deal which my country can get, and if it is, then I will support it, as will my friends in this room. The words hung in the air with a weight that prevented Lloyd George from ignoring them. He had been outvoted, and now he had let his temper get the better of him, and he had been out-talked. 
Everyone had seen it happen, and everyone knew that he was on his own. Joseph Doherty, the man who had proposed this whole thing in the first place, then spoke up. Prime Minister, Canada supports this proposal and wishes to welcome Ireland into the family of the Dominions. The proposal was not imagined in a spirit of intrigue or bad faith, but as a means to solve these burning questions, which for generations has ruined the relationships of people Irish and English alike. We will not fight the mother country in Ireland's name, but I urge you to consider the positive implications for your acceptance of this compromise or the negative implications for ignoring it. It sends a clear message and sets Britain up to stand as an ambassador for worthy compromise and national understanding across the world. Lloyd George was taken aback somewhat by Doherty's eloquence and turn of phrase. He had little choice but to accept defeat, but he did not have to give up this fight publicly. The longer he held out, after all, the greater the concessions he could expect to get in return. Gentlemen, Lloyd George began, it is apparent that we are at an impasse. I will have to return to this matter in the future, as I am needed to prepare for the second plenary conference. It was the best excuse the Prime Minister could have thought of, and it at least meant that everyone was reminded of how important he was. As he left the room, he nearly walked into an individual standing outside, leaning against the door. Pardon me, Lloyd George said, without much conviction. Mr Prime Minister, the man exclaimed, before taking Lloyd George's hand and shaking it rapidly. My name is Generous Dinglebrush, military commander and veteran of the diplomatic school. I represent the interests of Belgium and can promise you firm friendship and support in all matters relating to our country's interests. Lloyd George barely heard what Dinglebrush had said. He was too busy staring at the man's utterly ridiculous features, from the exaggerated moustache to the gleaming black shoes, to the bushy eyebrows, to the dark yellow waistcoat, to the bulging gut. Dinglebrush was quite the name, which was only appropriate because Dinglebrush was quite a sight. Lloyd George garbled some greeting, and Dinglebrush made an effort to perform an unnecessary bowing gesture, which somehow caused him to flick a pen which had been in his hand in Lloyd George's direction. Black ink was flicked onto the Prime Minister's white shirt and onto his forehead. Dinglebrush, completely oblivious, made some remark about his diplomatic prowess equating to Bismarck's as an infuriated Lloyd George removed a handkerchief from his pocket and patiently dabbed at his shirt as the seething anger started to build. At the top of the staircase he could already see Fitzwilliam and Tancred who called down to their Prime Minister. Have you seen Orlando anywhere, sir? We were told he was working on some kind of trade agreement for the Baltic. Did you ever hear so- Enough! Lloyd George bellowed, his patience finally escaping him. I'm leaving this wretched hotel before another scheme is hatched on top of me. Dinglebrush, you pretentious ratbag, you will get out of my way or your new lodgings will be at the bottom of the Seine riverbed. Generous Dinglebrush went pale. He muttered several apologies and he tripped over the first step of the staircase in a bid to remove himself from Lloyd George's furious presence. Apologising also to this staircase, Dinglebrush then hurried onto the bar. Alcohol, he was sure, would clear his senses. Lloyd George walked briskly towards the front door of the Hotel Twomley with Fitzwilliam and Tancred anxiously following behind him. Sir, Tancred began before Fitzwilliam glared at him to stay silent. There was a time and a place to warn the Prime Minister about what those pesky Eastern Europeans were up to and this was not it. The two Brits let Lloyd George walk ahead, calling after him that they would see him at the plenary conference. 
The British Prime Minister got into the first cab he saw and sped off. The two Brits then glanced at one another, glanced at the bar, then glanced back to one another, and began walking towards the bar. Before they met with their next delegate, it was essential to prepare. After a few drinks, and about 30 minutes later, Fitzwilliam and Tancred were suitably lubricated to begin considering meeting with Nikola Pesic, the Serbian Premier. While at the bar, they met another figure whom they believed would help them in their cause, a Slovenian by the name of Karhu Rosnak. Smoking far too many cigarettes, in between puffs and clouds of smoke, Rosnak informed the two Brits that he spoke Pesic's dialect of Serbian, which would be handy considering the fact that Pesic spoke little else, aside from some broken French. Armed with their translator, whom they promised would get a chance to properly converse with Pesic about all manner of issues, Tancred and Fitzwilliam and Rosnak then made their way to Pesic's room. Rosnak seemed to have several bees in his bonnet where Pesic was concerned, probably because his Slovenian homeland had recently been folded into a massive Slav kingdom under Serbian domination. The meeting with Pesic could either be really interesting or a total disaster, but these two Brits were too desperate for information to care that much about the consequences. The Poles were planning something, some kind of free trade agreement, and if they could find out more about it, then they might be able to ensure that Britain got a piece of it. Or, if it was a bad idea, they might be able to ensure that the whole thing was killed in its cradle before any real damage was done. Reportedly, the newly arrived Serbian Premier was a master of plots and knew all schemes going on at all times. This was supposedly how the bearded Serbian statesman had survived so many years at the helm of his stroppy country. Leaving the bar, going up a flight of stairs and knocking on Pejic's door, the three men entered. Inside, they found the equivalent of an American colony, as the five-man American delegation, swollen in recent days with two new additions, were seated around a square table with Nikola Pesic slowly pacing up and down beside them. Teddy Roosevelt was muttering something about the necessity of free trade to Bruce Pug and Joseph Zahn, while the two newer American delegates, Oliver Flanagan and William Randolph Hearst, talked to each other. The two Brits could feel the tension in the room, and before they could say much else, Karhu Rosnak walked briskly to where Pesic was pacing and engaged him in passionate conversation. Nobody else in the room had any idea what these two Balkans were saying to one another, but they could discern from the tone and facial expressions that there was a lot of emotion in the air. At one point, Rosnak began shouting at Pesic, who simply shook his head. This was not what their supposed translator was meant to do. Fitzwilliam and Tancred exchanged awkward glances with the five Americans who were seated, who looked up only briefly from their table to nod at them. Apparently giving up, Karhu Rosnak stormed past the two Brits. Fitzwilliam stopped the Slovenian before he could leave. Sir, Fitzwilliam began, what was all that about? You were meant to translate for us. Insufferable, Rosnak replied. An insufferable man with insufferable views. He refuses to leave my country in peace, and he refuses to place the future of Slovenia in Slovenian hands. By what right does Serbia have to march up the Adriatic coast and occupy my country? The French ought to do something. I'm going to find Clemenceau. Before either Fitzwilliam or Tancred could offer a reply, Rosnak was gone. Now these two Brits were in a room with a Serbian and five Americans, but that begged the question, what exactly were all the Yanks doing here? 
Could it be that they were here for the same reason? Does anyone have a cigarette? William Randolph Hearst asked, before Pesic stopped his pacing and flung a small pack in his direction. Joseph Zahn and Bruce Pug also took one from the pack. Apparently it had been that type of a day. What are you doing here, sirs? Tancred asked, as confidently as he could. Roosevelt stole a glance in his direction before looking at his delegates, who declined to answer. Very well, Roosevelt muttered. Gentlemen, we have been talking with Serbia's Premier for some time now, and it is evident that the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement is severely lacking, and in many respects dangerous. The Poles, with 45% representation, the council of this organisation, based in Prague, America's interests not considered, Greater Serbia is ignored as well, Austria and Germany pushed to the wayside, Britain and France excluded. This is unacceptable, and while the Italian, Greek, Polish and Hungarian delegates may see opportunities and potentials in this scheme, it is the opinion of America's representatives that the act is fundamentally unsatisfactory. Mr. President, Oliver Flanagan piped up, the motion has already been passed. Should we wait for it to collapse in on itself, or should we actively seek to undermine it? It is an outrage, opined Bruce Pug. The whole idea is flawed from the beginning. What about voting rights, opt-out rights, trade with third parties, self-determination for states within its orbit? Where are the Hungarians now? William Randolph Hearst asked. Could they be a convenient route into undermining the scheme? We think so, Roosevelt replied. But, Mr. Zahn, didn't you say you heard that Lady Chalk and President Carley have gone AWOL? Yes, Mr. President, Zahn confirmed. They were last seen having a wild night on the town, and I haven't been able to find them since the 22nd of January. Whispers and giggles began to ripple around the table, and then Pesic intervened in a gruff, raspy version of French. Intermarium free trade agreement unacceptable to Serbia. We will oppose by force if necessary. Monsieur Orlando has always feared the Slavs. Now he will have to face us and our friends on the battlefield if he continues to push the issue. I will never compromise on Serbia's interests. Tancred attempted to sum up the situation. So, by my understanding, it's essentially the Polish, Greek, Italian, Hungarian, and even Russian delegate Kerensky against our own? Correct, Roosevelt said. I have heard it said, even by some of the Polish supporters of the agreement, that it leaves much to be desired as it is, so I would not worry too much about its sustainability. Woodrow Wilson will lose his marbles, William Randolph Hearst remarked, which gave Roosevelt the opportunity to add, he never had them to begin with. All this room of men could agree on was that the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement was bad, but they seemed less capable of devising a solution for taking IFTA apart, or whether it could even be taken apart. We will adopt a wait-and-see attitude, Roosevelt said. This is the best policy, because so long as we are prepared, we will not be cut off guard. Rest assured, Mr. Pesic, America will stand by you no matter the outcome. After this had been translated into some form of French, this seemed to give the Serbian Premier a measure of comfort. Sir Alistair Tancred wasn't quite satisfied with that, though, and he added, Gentlemen, I know we see many aspects of this conference differently, but I really must emphasise Britain's emphatic condemnation of this whole scheme. Should any other delegations, including your own, present themselves as also opposed to this scheme, 
then I commit to support you wholeheartedly. Fitzwilliam echoed his colleague's sentiments before adding, Speaking of which, has anyone seen the Jerry's lately? The Jerry's were in fact a short way down the hall from Pesic's room. Seated around a small table was Paul von Leto Vorbach, Horten von Hotzendorf, Chancellor Karl Renner of Austria, and two less obvious allies, Japanese Foreign Minister Baron Makino Nabuaki and his Bedouin friend Prince Navar Sharif. The five men were discussing, unsurprisingly, the recent passage of the IFTA proposal. Let me make this clear, von Leto Vorbeck began. This arrangement is based upon inequality, and its key tenants are founded upon sand. It provides for an arrangement which the current state of flux in Europe could easily render obsolete within a few months. I also fear it will embolden the reckless Poles and rash Hungarians into action, not to mention embolden the jealous Italians to undermine us further. Karl Renner added to this, Your Excellency, we understand that Japan has no real interest in this arrangement, but we urge you to consider that by supporting us on this course of opposition, you will have firm allies in Germany and Austria going forward at the conference. Baron Nabuaki didn't say much, but he nodded and continued to stroke his moustache and sword in equal measure. Prince Sharif then spoke up in a smooth French turn of phrase, saying, My friends, Arabs the world over only wish to be treated with equal respect and friendship. When we see acts of injustice perpetrated elsewhere, the sight makes us deeply angry and upset. I cannot speak for the whole Middle East, but for my family, we are with you in standing against this agreement. Horton von Hotzendorf noted the Bedouin's approval before turning back to the Japanese foreign minister. Your Excellency, have you talked with Prince Sharun of Siam? His Highness has expressed values and sentiments similar to your own. I have spoken with the Prince of Siam, Nabuaki confirmed, but our arrangements are our own. Von Leto Vorbeck seemed a bit offended at this, so Karl Renner attempted to change the subject. Gentlemen, soon the League of Nations will be presented before the world, and we can all be certain that Woodrow Wilson will never tolerate any rival institutions, be they based in economic or political principles. I believe it is thus essential to demonstrate our firm support of the League at this early stage, especially since it provides us vanquished powers with the opportunity to rebuild our relationships with the West. Speak for yourself, von Leto Vorbeck boomed. Prussia remains strong and has not been defeated. Her enemies fear her even now. Certainly, Chancellor Renner sighed. But for the rest of us, not fortunate enough to possess Prussia's constitution, I believe it would be wise to approach the Allies with willing hearts and to look for opportunities at the same time to drive wedges between them wherever we can. Agreed, said Sharif. His Excellency, Nabuwagi and I will work towards the end of freeing formerly subject peoples in Asia and the Middle East from European domination, and we will remain sympathetic to approaches from your quarter so long as you return the favour in time. Understood, Chancellor Renner replied. You can count on the Germanics to support you in your quest for justice and liberation. Paul von Leto Vorbeck grunted and muttered something racist under his breath, but it was ignored. The time had now come to attend the plenary conference and see what Woodrow Wilson had brought for them. 
It had been a morning of great tension, speculation and compromise. What impact would devolved government have on Ireland, and could the British or Irish communities accept the proposal as it stood? With the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement passed, was it too late to modify it and make it more acceptable to all involved? Or was the proposal always going to be contentious by its very nature, and to ensure that it succeeded, did simply require a solid defence of its key tenants by all the parties involved? These two proposals had very much shaped the course of the debate over the recent days, but more debates and votes and proposals lay on the horizon, and for the residents of the Hotel Twomley, there was much work still left to be done. Okay, history friends and delegates, you've now reached the end of the episode. Last week I asked you to vote on certain issues But today we're redoing these votes, with the hope that you've listened to the actual episodes of this project that address their nuances and contents, so you understand what you'll be voting for. We turn first to that aforementioned meeting of the League. The question is how you react to it, and the choices are permit history, oppose the League of Nations, support the League of Nations, support the League of Nations with some different conditions, or establish your own rival institution. Considering the passage of the Intermarium Free Trade Agreement and the potential that institution has to court political cooperation as well as further controversy and opposition, the field looks very different indeed to how it looked last week. The same is especially true for the Irish proposal, which has greatly shaped the situation in Ireland. Our second weekly challenge is based on the eruption of the War of Independence, which broke out on the 21st of January 1919 in Ireland. The question is how you react to this, and the options have been changed a good bit from last week, so make sure you go and check them out. Bear in mind that the devolved government resolution has passed, but the War of Independence does still rage on. This was because, of course, not all Irishmen and women would be happy with a political solution, and some preferred the use of force to the use of dialogue. To those that did prefer fighting with words, such as Delegate Sean T. O'Kelly in Paris, There remained much work to be done to persuade his colleagues at home and in the French capital that this course was the correct one. So if he was going to make a good go of this, and if Ireland was going to be saved, much more war, then people would have to support him enthusiastically. Anyway, I hope you'll join me next weekend to find out the implications of those two votes that I just mentioned, but remember to get out there and vote, as they say, by participating in the survey monkey vote which I sent your way just before recording. I should mention that... For some reason, I don't have every single email address tracked down in that there's 37 people playing this game, but I've only been able to send this thing to 36 people because those are all the addresses that I have. So if you're listening to this right now and you didn't get it, then you must be that one person who I've missed out. Rather than try and find out which guy is missing, I thought it would probably be easier to just wait for someone to say, hey, I didn't get that, and work from there. So there you go. What an exciting story. In any case... Thanks so much for listening and participating if you've been playing along with us and make sure you continue to scheme, intrigue, negotiate and propose in the meantime. Thanks so much for playing, my dear delegates. I have been your chairman, Zach Twomley, and I'll be seeing you all soon.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.